Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. I'm joined today by Darren Deal, who is in Mississauga and um, has really quite a story to tell of what's been happening to him over the past uh, five months or so. Um, and um, his then really valuable insights onto w- what's been going on. So Darren, uh, welcome to Lung Cancer Voices podcast. Thank you very much, Paul. It's good to be here. Um, maybe uh, for people listening to this, you could just introduce yourself a little bit and then tell us what happened to you back in May. Sure. Um, uh, so I'm uh, 60 years old and um, in November of 2019, I actually got laid off from my job kind of pre-COVID, although there was a lot more people that got laid off a few months later. But um, um, so I had uh, been out of work, looking for work during the, the, the craziness of COVID, uh, but trying to maintain my uh, my uh, life in other ways, uh, including exercising regularly. And uh, that's kind of where this story kind of, from my story, uh, health uh, crisis story of 2020 jumps off uh, in the middle of the sort of COVID lockdown. You, you told me earlier that you, you were trying to stay active and exercise, but even that had changed. So the way you were exercising was different because of lockdown. Well, I mean, uh, as most people would be familiar, you know, I went to the gyms themselves because uh, I was a member of the gym and I was working with regularly with a trainer, someone I've trained with for, oh, 10 years or so. And there were some one-on-ones I would do with him and also with some small group classes. And so after about a month or so, like a lot of other um, uh, gyms and instructors, uh, they figured out, hey, why don't we do like a Zoom class? And everybody sort of, we all set up our own little mini gyms at home. I, I built mine in the garage. And um, with this trainer, you know, we were primarily using kettlebell weights and, you know, stretch straps and stuff like that. So we basically just needed mats and, and those weights around. And then um, we all figured it out um, and we were, you know, sort of dialing in uh, up to five times, a, a five mornings a week, you know, as much as you could make it in the morning. And this particular on the, it was the Sunday of May 17th, I dialed in for, for um, uh, one of our regular sessions and, you know, they work pretty well. Uh, you, you know, he can see all of us and we can see him if he needs to demonstrate something. Uh, it was an adjustment, uh, but then, like I said, by the time May rolled around, we'd been at it for a few months, so I'd, um, uh, at least a couple months anyway, so I'd become uh, part of the COVID lockdown routine. And then on this particular day, um, there wasn't anything that necessarily happened during the the workout that I noticed, but uh, probably an hour after the workout ended, and it was a Sunday, so I was home, and I uh, started not feeling well and, um, and I, you know, I had nausea and headache and so on. And over the course of the next few days, I'd started to 
get a few other symptoms. I had the chills and so on. And because everything at this time was so COVID focused, myself and my wife and, you know, uh, my adult children that uh, were in the house, um, we all sort of started to worry about, well, gee, maybe I should get, you know, checked out. Uh, I, I didn't think about any other possibility, really. Um, I didn't have, no, to be clear, I didn't have any sort of clear other symptom that made me think something else necessarily. So, but I didn't act on it, uh, you know, foolishly right away. Uh, so that was a Sunday when the exercise class was. And it wasn't until Friday, following Friday morning, that I finally decided to, uh, in Ontario here, phone Telehealth Ontario. Right. And um, um, we, you know, we, we were convinced and encouraged by um, a relative of ours who's a nurse saying, look, you know, you've got four or five of the, of the 10 symptoms that they look for. So why don't you go through their online question protocol? And, and it was on that call that the nurse that was asking me questions, you know, I had talked about how after, you know, when I wasn't feeling well, one of the issues I had was, you know, I had some some pain in my chest sort of horizontally across my chest, which because we had done chest work that day, I had assumed was sort of sore muscles, even though it felt a little different than it had before. And she was concerned. And then that had gone away on the Sunday. And then on the Thursday, the day before I called her and the day that I was talking to her, it had come back, although it was more of a vertical discomfort. And so that, um, at the end of the, you know, I answered all the coding questions. And then at the end of the call, she said, you know, Mr. Deal, I think you've had a heart attack. And uh, I've ordered an ambulance to come there because I want them to hook you up and, and have a look. So, you know, we, we said, okay. Uh, and I was kind of shocked and, and, and thought it was overkill because, you know, at this point, other than this sort of discomfort I had in the center of my chest, I was not, you know, uh, you know, under any great duress or anything. And uh, I'd actually recovered from most of the other symptoms that I'd had that week. So, cause we, so we were thinking COVID, COVID, COVID. Right. Um, so they, the ambulance came, um, they did check me out. They said, well, you're, you're not having a heart attack right now, but that doesn't mean you, you haven't had one. Uh, so they did take me to the hospital nearby here in Mississauga, where I went through their COVID intake. So I was swabbed and isolated, um, and um, but they also began to take blood and went for a chest X-ray, I think, and uh, uh, you know a scan and just to as they wanted to. And, and in fact, a few hours after I'd been there, uh, one of the attending doctors came by and said, "Look, I don't actually think you have COVID, but you'll go. Home. You know, uh, we're just pending a cup. You know, some of your." Blood works come back and everything looks fine. I've ordered two more tests because they should have been on the first order uh, just to check out if there is anything wrong with your heart. But if it comes back negative, we're going to send you home and you'll isolate until we call you with your test results right. uh, for COVID. And then uh, so the extra blood work that he had done uh, was it was a good thing because it had uh, he came back less than an hour later with the results and said, you know, Mr. Deal, you've had a heart attack. <laughs> straight wow. to my face and it was like you're kidding and it said no it's it's clear that here are the markers that show and here's 
here's why. So we're going to admit you. And um, so eventually, I think it was the next morning, they transferred me to uh, the regular emergency intake, although I had to be isolated because I had a, you know, I had the COVID pending. And it was, it was to be in the hospital at that time was quite something because it was, you know, there was a lot of the hospital was busy, I think, with with uh, the COVID protocols, which were a burden. So, uh, sorry, Darren, you know, it does bring up some really interesting yeah. points of what medicine was happening at the time with, uh, yeah. you know, people maybe not not going to hospital when when in other scenarios they may have they, they may have. And, um, you know, COVID being the dominating thing that everybody is thinking, could this be COVID or not? When you know, clearly in this case, you'd, you'd had a heart attack. And then presumably when you were in the hospital, there were visitor restrictions and, and, and other things going on. Well, yeah, I mean, over the stretch that I was in there, I was in there for 16 days and no visitations, no, no visitors allowed. They did allow my wife to come. So what happened was uh, my wife was allowed to come on the day of what turned out to be my bypass surgery. Um, once they determined that I'd had a heart attack and I got admitted eventually uh, from uh, moved my way up to the cardiac ward, my first COVID test came back negative. And over the course of my hospital stay, I had three more um, and they all kept turning out negative. But, you know, they once I was on the ward, um, they I had the first procedure I was scheduled for was um, an angiogram where they went in and looked at the heart and determined, yeah, you've actually got some blockages here and you're going to need bypass surgery. It looks like you've got at least four. And then it wasn't until, you know, a, a strange thing happened. I would skip, that was like the Tuesday after the Friday that I had, I checked in to the hospital. The Tuesday was when I had the angiogram. And then it looked like that Thursday, uh, following Thursday, I was going to have the bypass surgery. They had to postpone it because I had somehow uh, picked up a, uh, a parasite, a bug, and, the, and and I was getting sick again, like I had been the week before. So, you know, I was having diarrhea and upset stomach and so on. So they they'd done a test and determined that somehow I had I'd had a parasite. They'd asked me if I'd been to the farm, all that. <laughs> I no, I hadn't. But so, anyways, it was a common parasite that they said your system kind of clears on its own. So that, you know, uh, I was cleared again, uh, more COVID tests, because every time you have a procedure, you have to have been cleared recently from a COVID test. Uh, and then um, it was the following Monday, June 1st, that I did actually go in for the bypass surgery, ended up having a quintuple bypass. And then, but in between, before that surgery day, uh, one of the cardiologists came to see me and said, and told me that um, one of the scans that they had to they had done to just sort of see what was going on in my chest in terms of my heart attack and were there any other problems, um, they uh, discovered um, a, a couple of nodules uh, type um, markings on on each of my lungs. So there was like one on my left lung and one in my right lung. So they at that time they told me look you know this could be a number of different things including you know some scary things but also just benign things and so i mean on top of everything else i was sort of worried about that went in had the surgery recovered from the surgery um 
And then the following, it was, I was in, recovered from the surgery. Uh, and, and as I mentioned earlier, my wife was allowed to come the day of the surgery. So the morning before they wheeled me in, we had a brief visit, which was terrific. Uh, and then recovered for, you know, a number of days at the hospital, getting up, walking around and stuff. And then um, uh, my surgeon had told me when he came to see me afterwards on the ward that they, he was able to remove the large nodule and that they had put it in for pathology tests. And so we're kind of focused on <clears throat> recovering from the, the quintuple bypass and all of that. And we kind of buried in the back of our heads, my wife and I, about the, uh, you know, the, that I had this other thing that was discovered and we weren't sure what it was. But of course, nobody had said to me the word cancer, but it was there in my head, as you can imagine. Um, and uh, so it was on the Saturday of the, the following weekend, and I got released on the Sunday. The Saturday came in and said the pathology report had come back, and unfortunately, it had showed that I did have a, uh, yeah, a, a lung, yeah, carcinoma, and you know they. Uh, but um, uh, on the next morning, which was the day that I was being released, he he came back with a bit more info and saying that, look, at uh, the one good piece of news is that uh, the margins on the that you know on what we took out the were clean, so it looks like we got all of your of that bigger nodule and you still have the smaller one, which was about a centimeter and a half. The, the larger one was about two and a half centimeters. Um, but they, you know, I've, you said, you know, I've referred you to three great oncologists and, you know, they'll take over once you've recovered a bit from your heart surgery to figure out how to get rid of the other one. So, so, so we went home. Aaron, uh, sorry. So at this point, am I right? Yeah. Saying you've gone through about three weeks from being, healthy starting a gym session yeah. <laughs> to now going in and out of hospital having thought maybe you have covid oh no you've had a heart attack you've had a quintuple bypass and now lo and behold you've been diagnosed with lung cancer as well yes so it's a, you wouldn't wish that all on of anyone. that <laughs> uh, exactly yeah i mean it was a but, bizarre but, freight freight training of events that no just kidding. you know before we talk more about result. Before we talk more about the lung cancer, Darren, maybe I should just ask how you're feeling now. Are you are you, are you feeling well? Yeah, in terms of the heart recovery, um, you know, uh, and again, to your point about COVID, one of the things that got interrupted because of COVID was the normal sort of post-surgery heart recovery program that you go on because the, you know, the uh, in my case, there's uh, the University of Toronto Mississauga campus has a, you know, heart recovery gym where they can hook you up to the different machines to test stuff and so on. But they were all shut down. And so all of those programs were shut down. They eventually called me, uh, you know, uh, more than two months after I, you know, had the surgery. And I had been uh, you know, doing my own walking and fitness regime and was and, and they said, you know, you probably, you're probably past this initial six week recovery, which would, so this, there's a six week recovery. And then at the, after six weeks, you, that you go on this program, but it was not available till the very end of September. So I'd kind of moved past it anyway. So I moved on, but it's, it's, uh, and the other thing, you know, to, to, to your other, to your point again about, whether or not people are avoiding that. They told me that, you know, 
because of COVID, they were able to clear the backlog of all of the surgeries that, you know, at the time, of, this is at the time that I had my surgery, that, you know, I didn't have to wait a long time because, uh, well, I was already in the hospital was one thing, but that there wasn't much of a backlog. And at the one hand, that was a good thing because they clear the, the people waiting for their surgeries. But at the other hand, they I, I know that they talked, they suspected that people weren't coming into the hospital when maybe they might otherwise to get something checked out. Um, so it, it, it made me feel grateful that <laughs> I finally did, you know, uh, come in. I should have come in sooner or called sooner, but, um, you know, lesson learned there. So let, let's get back to the lung cancer. You, you're diagnosed from hospital now. You've had this tumor removed surgically, um, but then you go on and have a, a, a PET scan. Um, Correct. To, what, what did that show? So what, yeah, what happened was um, my initial meetings with the three, because uh, I got, you know, referred to a, a, a surgical and a um, radiation oncologist as well as a medical oncologist. And I had telephone meetings with two of them. I went into, my wife and I went in to meet with the medical oncologist. And at the time, uh, before I had the PET scan, uh, we met him uh, and he said, well, you know what, I probably may not even be involved because it looks like you know, if you just have this one smaller nodule left that either radiation or surgery would probably be your best option. But so we'll, but we'll wait and see, uh, you know, how the test goes. So it was actually the surgeon that had ordered the PET scan. He wanted to make sure that, you know, what we were dealing with. And I was learning, uh, you know, as a patient with lung cancer, I was starting to do some reading and understanding that, you know, um, uh, there are different ways that, it would potentially spread and stuff. So I was starting to educate myself on that. And I, I understood like I had to have basically a full body MRI and also a brain scan. And, uh, you know, that's because often lung cancer, as you would know, can make the jump up into the brain. So while my brain scan, which actually happened second was clear, the, the, what the PET scan showed was that, uh, where they had, you know, it, it still showed the single one on the right side nodule, which they don't know for sure is cancer, but they suspect is. Um, but where they had removed the larger one from my left side, um, they found in that area some more spots, including one or two lymph nodes that had uh, become uh, affected as well. So, um, you know, that was a difficult phone call because the, the surgical oncologist, you know, called us uh, to explain those results to us. And up to that point, we'd understood it to be uh, stage one or two because, you know, it was a couple of localized spots or something in, in my lungs. But that's when he, they said, well, no, this, you know, now looks like uh, really your stage four which as I've learned, a lot of people, when they find out they have lung cancer, that's, they find out when it's stage four, um, something right. you know better than I, but, but, um, so that that's was probably, the, uh, that's that day was probably the, with Darren, uh, is that 50% of people are stage four with lung cancer. Yeah. But there is a lot more hope these days because of new treatments and, uh, you're on one of the newer treatments, I think. 
Well, exactly. So what happened was the story then, you know, the oncologist and the radiation, uh, the radiation and the surgical oncologist said, look, you know, uh, as it turns out, um, neither of us can really help you right now. So it's, it's back over to the medical oncologist and he's a terrific guy. We both know him and, you know, they, they raved about him and, and, uh, you know, he was one that we actually met in person. So, um, we said, great. All right. So we'll, we'll go see him. Um, and he had told us about how the progress that had been made in these targeted therapies and that specific to my type of lung cancer and right down to the mutation that I have, um, there was a targeted therapy drug that had only been approved in Canada as recently as 2018, I believe, and that's the AstraZeneca Tegriso, you and I discussed earlier. Uh, but he explained that, uh, you know, nothing's, it's not a cure, but it, it, it was having dramatic results at halting and shrinking and, uh, you know, tumors and uh, uh, even eradicating it from, from parts of your body and so on. Um, I've since gone on to read a lot about it, join a support group that's based on people that are taking it and so on, uh, a few other groups, and gone on to your Lung Cancer Canada site to learn about more about it as well. So uh, I started taking that pill on August 1st, and I actually have my first scan to uh, check in on the progress scheduled for uh, the end of October. So um, I'll have to... Uh... We'll have to get you back on the podcast to uh, report on uh, how well it's going, uh, Darren. Yeah. Um, one of the challenges with um, with um, not Tegriso specifically or osimertinib as its other name, um, but yeah. that class of drugs, they're, they're tablets, cancer uh, treatments. And one of the challenges with um, tablet cancer treatments for this type of lung cancer or other types indeed is um, is getting access to them. Um, they're, they're generally quite expensive. And while uh, provincial governments do pay for them, uh, it can that can come in a different form uh, depending on where in Canada you live and how old you are. Yep. And so I'm just interested for you because you're under 65. So it's that makes it a little bit harder in Ontario. And then you said right at the beginning of the podcast that you'd lost your job back at the end of last year. So was it easy to get this drug for you or did you have some well, to jump through? What had happened was uh, when we'd gone to see him the first time, the, the medical oncologist, he did explain to us uh, about this drug. And then he also said, he asked me if we, we had private health insurance. He said, well, mine's just lapsed because I, I, it continued through my, um, my, uh, you know, departure package, uh, months, but that had ended at the end of May. Um, and he said, well, uh, you know, this, this drug that if you were to have it, um, it's to, to Griso, it, it's often even not covered by some of your private, uh, uh, coverage, depending on what kind you have. And, um, how good it is, but um, he mentioned to us in the Ontario, you know, it's not covered by the uh, OHIP program, but there's a separate program specific for like catastrophic drug costs that you might, for people that don't have private health insurance. So that's the Trillium program 
that uh, so um, we just we my wife and I we applied for that uh, and, I, uh, and Darren I should just clarify there that OHIP does cover the drug um, routinely if you're over 65 or under right. 20, or under 26 or between those ages if you're on some sort of disability benefits but if you're okay. not and you've been healthy like you've been um, yeah. Then, then that's where the challenge comes in. So, so you you had to apply for the this Trillium program. Yeah. yeah, we applied for the Trillium program. We did get accepted, and then it was explained to us like the annual cost. Uh, what I understood was of this drug was like one hundred and thirty-two thousand dollars, approximately, um, like eleven thousand dollars a month. And then, uh, so what uh, what we were told was that. Uh, the drug would, uh, the drug program, the Trillium program would cover most of that. Uh, they would look at our tax returns and do a means test uh, deductible calculation. So for us, uh, that came to about 12,000. I think AstraZeneca then has a, a program that they knock about 20% of that off, but we were still facing a, a $10,000 deductible, not that we'd have to pay all up front. So, you know, we've paid a uh, I think a, an initial quarter of it up front, and then uh, another a second quarter of it is due probably in the next month. So, you know, in our case, uh, I was I was out of work, and my uh, my uh, departure package had had ended. Um, my wife works freelance, uh, um, but uh, it was, and uh, this is where a couple of planful things that we had done in our lives uh, had come had come in to be handy, including the fact that, uh, uh, you know, a very fortunate piece of timing was that technically I was, um, I got, uh, went into the hospital May 22nd. And so, as I mentioned, I, I did have a package when I was let go and it ran out uh, May 31st. So I was still under my benefits coverage and my benefits coverage I had included you know, made the decision annually to add uh, critical illness insurance. So I had a couple of units of that that I, you know, paid into through my paychecks and so on. Some of it was, you know, sponsored by the employer. But if you wanted more than a single unit of 25000 you know, you could pay for another as many units of 25000 as you want. But it's out of your own pocket, the, the, the premium. Um, but it would come off my paycheck. And so I realized, well, gee, that we could apply for that. And we checked and they said, yeah, you're eligible for that, for the heart attack. So we um, applied for that and were able to get that. So that had come in handy. Um, in our case, we also had some former colleagues of mine uh, organize a little GoFundMe that, uh, to raise some funds to help us pay for that deductible. So we were well taken care of, but I certainly thought, well, you know, what do people do when they're in this situation? Uh, because it's not a cost that you would have ever thought you'd need to cover, you know, generally speaking. And we should say at this point, so you've mentioned GoFundMe pages, the, the, the Trillium program, which was ultimately the way that covered most of the drug, uh, critical illness cover, you know, these different mechanisms that have, you know, combined to get you access to the drug. But I don't think we mentioned that the, the job that you were in and, and your career has has largely been in financial literacy and you, you are a financially literate person and you 
right on these matters and maybe I could I could plug your your blog which tells a story on the the financial independence hub uh, website where you can we can also hear your story so you presumably you were you could navigate the system because of your background well it's it's kind of ironic that uh, you know some friends of mine that I've also been financial services journalists or communicators uh, uh, I've worked for, uh, I, I just finished working for a bank. I'd worked for an insurance company before I'd worked for a mutual fund company. So, and I was always involved in, uh, um, financial literacy type content. Um, and, um, I'd worked even journalistically in that area as well. So it was, I'd written about these things a number of times, but here I was living these things. And, and so I was going back and being thankful that, you know, in our 40s, uh, we had in our early 40s, we had decided to get uh, to to get um, private um, disability insurance. Most people, you know, certainly rely on what they get from their employer. Um, but I'd been uh, I got laid off earlier in my career a couple of times as well. And I and my wife was a freelance, uh, you know, television producer and uh producer director and I thought well maybe it makes sense for us and you know talking to our own financial advisor that we should maybe think about having uh, disability insurance uh, you know some sort of protection privately as well in case something were to happen when neither of us was <laughs> or you know or I wasn't employed because uh, she's a freelancer so she doesn't have generally benefits so we had done that and that had come to be a good decision, uh, understanding what critical illness was and, and uh, you know, uh, checking off that option uh, at a cost to us. But, uh, you know, it made sense was another thing I would credit to under, my own understanding of this. Um, but I, I, I do, uh, I've, since I've told my story and I, you mentioned I did, uh, I wrote it mostly as a personal cathartic exercise and I passed it on to a contact of mind John Chevrolet for his independence blog. And, um, you know, I got quite a bit of reaction from that. People across my life reaching back in and many of them saying exactly that, uh, Paul, that they, wow, you know, we're going to take a second look at how we're set up here for uh, these kinds of eventualities. Because, you know, when you're, when you're planning for your retirement years and so on, you're thinking about, you know, well, where are we going to live and where are we going to vacation and what are we going to do and stuff like that? Um, you know, none of us necessarily want to think about, hey, well, what if one of us has a health crisis? You know, what's that going to do with the plan? And um, it it uh, it does uh, uh, make one pause and think. And uh, it, it makes people and there's a lot of people that are struggling, uh, even in Canada, where we have really terrific uh compared to a lot of places in the world, um, medical coverage through our, 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 our public programs, um, it, you know, it can still throw a wrench into your plans uh, and, and costs that you, would, you hadn't prepared for if uh, you hadn't taken these situa- you know, situations into account and taken action. So if, if there are people listening to this, um, Darren, who um, have, maybe in a similar situation to you have just been diagnosed with, uh, with cancer and are fairly new into their treatment and access issues. And what, 
what advice would you give them? I mean, or what what life lessons have you have you learned or things that you would want to pass on that you've picked up in the past? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I I've got probably uh, five or six that I thought about um, myself. That um, you know, the first one though, it goes back to that day that I, you know, people said to me, well, why didn't you like go to the hospital the day of you know you had the heart attack. Now, I didn't know I had a heart attack, but I think the first thing is don't diagnose yourself. If uh, even in this time of COVID, when we may be resisted, resistant to go to up to a hospital, I mean, there, there are options. You, you can go to a clinic, you can call your doctor, you can call telehealth Ontario. And just if you're, there's something not right, um, uh, contact, uh, see your doctor, call telehealth, and just you know get in touch with uh, medical experts and let them know what's going on. Um, maybe, I'm, I I'm just, for- uh, maybe I could reinforce that message that we've been trying to get out, which is 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 very much that it is that if you feel ill, you know, seek medical attention. Um, you know, hospitals and GP practices, if maybe working differently, but open for business to help people who are ill. Yeah, and I think you know. In, in, the other thing to point out about the times we live in is, you know, you've got Dr. Google and I think we all sort of, uh, which it can be a useful thing, but on the other hand, if, if they're using it to rationalize a decision that maybe isn't the right decision in terms of not contacting medical experts and, and, and getting, you know, letting people know what, how you're feeling um, it's, it's a mistake. So that's my primary first lesson uh that I personally have learned and would pass on. I think, again, depending where you live in the country, but to, to understand that there are scenarios in which, you know, your provincial health coverage might not be there for you for certain scenarios. So to understand what's covered by your provincial health care plan and what other government programs can help uh, how pay for catastrophic medical costs in, 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 in is, is not a bad thing as well, is to understand that. And most cancer centers, uh, Darren, or, or indeed, you know, Lung Cancer Canada as well can, um, you know, can help connect, uh, connect people with uh, social workers or experts who can guide you through, you know, some of these really, you know, technically difficult processes to go through to get access and see what's available and what forms need to be filled in and by when and sent to who, et cetera. Exactly. Uh, so I think, um, uh, you know, we, we had to learn on the fly uh, to, to maybe be aware of that a little bit more. So uh, at any stage of your life, when, you know, you are sort of planning out your, your, your retirement uh, plan, your, uh, to consider the health issues as something you might need to plan for as well. And on that note, I mean, that brings me to two other points. One would be to understand your work health benefits options that are available to you. A lot of people, you know, even younger people, whatever, you may start a job, you understand you got benefits and, oh, great, you know, I can get, you know, 10 massages a year or something, or uh, I know that it covers dental and I can, you know, get this clean, my cleaning done and money towards glasses and stuff. But there's usually... Um, options in there there's you know where you a certain amount of life insurance is provided but uh, you know there's options in there to contribute to to get things like critical illness insurance 
It usually provides short-term and long-term disability. Um, so just to make sure you're literate on what your employer benefits do provide. And then the part two of that is to then consider what uh, health insurance or what sort of other savings you might want to plan for to have um, that aren't provided by your employer or that you might want to have in case you're go through a period of, or you know, like if you're, if you're self-employed and don't have benefits, then this is an investigation you need to do anyways. But even for people that, that uh, maybe are relying uh, solely on their employee, employee uh, benefits um, to consider uh, one or two things outside and, and just uh, uh, in case you go through a period of time where you're, you're not covered, you don't have your benefits, um, you're not left uh, alone in the lurch. <laughs> and I think uh, you've offered, Darren, to uh, maybe help us at Lung Cancer Canada maybe do another podcast like this with a financial literacy yeah. panel. Yeah, I'd to love through to, some of to help these, uh, go through some of these issues. I really appreciate you taking the time, Darren, to... to take us through the story here because I you know you've raised some really interesting and you know thought-provoking issues that have occurred to you in, in terms of your diagnosis during COVID times uh, and the issues around that um, you know the quite dramatic health story you've had yourself with uh, you know a quintuple bypass from a heart attack and lung cancer but then also being able to talk about some of these challenges around getting access to medications and um, and, and the financial literacy of, of, about navigating this. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time to join us uh, on the podcast. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, certainly think these are important uh, life-altering uh, issues. So um, I'm happy to help. Great, thanks, Darren. And, and for those who have listened to this podcast, if you had questions about it, um, uh, or, or more general questions about uh, lung cancer, please go and visit our website at lungcancercanada.ca. Thanks for your attention and come back for the next podcast. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.